Hello and welcome to the Sound Up Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Cartwright, and today I am currently recording this by myself. John Kerry is out and about on vacation for Thanksgiving, and we hope you're going to have a good Thanksgiving too. What we are going to do today is we're each going to try and record 10 to 15 minutes, and I will splice them together, give you guys a little little segment of both of us, and hopefully you enjoy I am going to be breaking down uh, some recent Mariner moves that just happened this morning. I'm recording this on Wednesday at 3.30. And uh, I'll also be breaking down the UW-Oregon State game, looking ahead to the Wazoo game this weekend, and then giving you my value dogs. I believe John is planning on breaking down some Seahawks, some Zags, whatever he's feeling. Um, But before we get into that, as always, a little Coyote Picnic. It has been a week since we last talked, and since then we've had a couple Mariners moves. Um, I'm going to break down the short and sweet one first, and then we'll talk into the, a little bit about the one that happened today. Um, last week, we traded pitcher, he's a relief pitcher, Isaiah Campbell, to, oh, who was it? The Boston Red Sox for Luis Urias. Uh, Isaiah Campbell was... A decent relief pitcher, kind of a middle middling relief pitcher, uh, would come in in the the sixth if we were not in a great spot, or he would come in in the ninth. Sometimes close games if we were up by a decent amount. Um, yeah, he was a solid pitcher, good fastball, good slider, um, projected well. Uh, and we get Urias, we get one year of Urias, I believe, and uh, he could play. He's kind of a right-handed Josh Rojas, is how I would like to picture him. Um, he basically plays second and third. Um, he had a really down year last year. I believe he hit uh, below 200, but it was kind of a riddled with injuries type season. He was when he was with the Brewers before last year. He was hitting high 200s, um, low strikeout rate, high walk rate, things that the Mariners have been looking for in a bat. Um, and honestly, to get a year of him for a few years of a relief pitcher in Isaiah Campbell, who I love, but isn't somebody that we're looking at long-term thinking he's going to be a high leverage reliever or anything like that. I really like this deal personally. Um, yeah, he's Isaiah Campbell is in my opinion, the Mariners can replace him and get the, the type of type of help that he gave them without, uh, without too much effort. That's kind of what the Mariners have been shown that they've been able to do over the last few years. And yeah, just looking ahead, I think we can replace Isaiah Campbell's production um, and getting something out of that, out of that contract in Luis Urias is a great deal. Um, that's kind of all I have to say on that. I don't want to get too too into the weeds, but I'm, I'm a fan of this deal, especially with the one that happened today um, occurring. So let's just kind of move forward straight into that one. Um and John and I talked about this deal specifically because we were both a little shocked. Um, there was some discussion on it, but you know, with the with the Urias trade happening, um, this was something that could happen, and we were a little surprised. But thinking about the deal, it makes sense if what everybody wants the Mariners to to make happen happens. If 
they add around the fringes and whatnot, this is going to be a deal that will lose a lot of fans, personally, um, in my opinion. So, here's what it is. We traded Eugenio Suarez, Gino, our boy, our lovely little teddy bear, um, for Zebi Zavala, man, that's tough to say, um, and Carlos Vargas um, on the Diamondbacks. And so those two, uh, not big names. We're not not getting anything huge from them. Uh, Zebi or Zavala, actually, we'll go. We'll call him by his last name. Zavala is uh, last few years he's been a below average hitter. Hitting OPS is six sixteen, seven twenty nine, and five forty four over twenty one, twenty two, and twenty three. Um, and he's a backup catcher. That's kind of what he is. I think with this addition, it's looking like we're not going to try and get Tom Murphy on the roster. Um, he might just be more expensive than the Mariners are willing to pay, uh, especially for a backup catcher. And I think he has the has this skill. I don't know about necessarily with the injury history and things of that nature, uh, but Tom Murphy has the skill to be a if you catcher one, if you will, um, taking on most of the uh, most of the catching for a team. Just not the Mariners with Cal Raleigh behind the plate for us. Um, so I like this move as a backup catcher to be able to spell Cal Raleigh, and he's got just you know more longevity in his career in the sense of Zavala is, is able to play the entire season whenever you need him. Murphy's been kind of, like I said, riddled with injury, and so adding a catcher that won't be injured for half the season, making Cal Raleigh take on way too much of a workload is probably going to help in the long run. I know losing Murphy is... Uh, is a big deal for the clubhouse. We know he's a big clubhouse guy, but um, he's a free agent, and we would have to offer him a decent contract to keep him. And it's baseball; it's professional sports. You sometimes got to move on from players you like. Um, that being said, we all, as Mariners fans collectively, did really love Gino Suarez. Um, yeah, t- tough loss. He was a great leader in the clubhouse. Um, I think he really connected well with the non-American born players. Um, but really good, really good guy. Um, the last couple of years he has seen, a, or I guess last year, I guess two years ago now at this point, he had a really good season for the Mariners hitting, um, let me pull up his stats. He had that 31 home run season, 236 average with a 791 OPS. That's a really good year. That's a really good year for, uh, for Gino kind of a bounce back year after the, um, after the couple of years in Cincinnati where he wasn't as good. Um, but this previous year, the most recent one, he definitely declined. Obviously, he played great defense um, and had a great, uh, had kind of a similar average, similar on base percentage. His slugging was just down and he played a lot more games. Um, so it could have been, you know, he was tired by the end of the season. Uh, he only hit 22 home runs. And when you get 598 at bats, you play every game. From your third baseman, that's really not a lot, and especially from somebody with Geno's power, it's a big regression. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's something that comes with having Geno on your team. His K percentage was bottom ten percent in the league. Um, as he had, I think the third most strikeouts in the league. Um, granted, when you play as much as he did, you do have a high strikeout rate, just or high strikeout percentage and or number in general, but a lower percentage because you're playing in so many more games than players who play less but strike out just as much. So tough to lose Gino. Um, I could see Urias and Rojas kind of switching off second and third base responsibilities, or we just have acquired Urias uh, to take Gino's role and 
I don't know. The, the production there is going to be going to be a little different. I think the, if we stick where we're at right now, this is not looking to be a trade that's going to make us better in the long... I guess maybe. It depends on if we're going to extend Urias. But it's not a trade that's going to make us better in the long term. But it is something where if we can acquire a good third baseman or extend Urias and we expect him to be better than he was last year, uh, this could be something something fruitful for the future. Um, the other guy we acquired in the Suarez trade from the Diamondbacks, Carlos Vargas. He is a young 24-year-old pitcher um, who profiles more as a reliever. He's got four pitches. He's got a four-seam, a cutter, a sinker, and a changeup. Um, I, th- I believe that's what uh, Castillo throws if you replace the cutter with a slider. And I just think... Um, yeah, having having this guy, I don't think he's his his uh, what is it? MLB prospect ranking has him or discussion has him talking talked about as a uh, potential mid or mid level starter, and I just don't necessarily see that from him. I see him as somebody who could kind of come in and become like a uh, Brash or like a Munoz, another guy who could become a high leverage arm, which is something the Mariners value a lot. And obviously they've been able to get a lot from them. You see in the Paul C- or you saw the Paul Seawall trade last year. Um, so if you can get this guy, he throws up to a hundred miles per hour. He's got a cannon of an arm, um, but he just doesn't have the control yet. And I think what that breaks down to is the Mariners are going to try and find his pitch selection. That's going to serve him the best and work from there on improving improving his uh his approach to pitching and we'll see him improve steadily from there he's got the stuff to be in the major leagues right now he's just got to refine that command get his walk percentage down um yeah god his pitching his k percentage was great last year but his walk percentage was pretty pretty bad it looks like he had a walk percentage around 18.2 and a strikeout percentage of 31.8 those are great numbers um yeah, good, great things to see from a from a young guy. Um, it doesn't feel like we got a ton for Gino here, but if you think about it, Gino's contract is one more year um, assured, or I guess this this upcoming year would be his last on his contract, besides a club option in twenty twenty five, and he's making eleven million this upcoming year, and the club option would bump to fifteen million. And I think to some extent there, it's uh, it's the Mariners trying try or. When I say I think to some extent, I mean I hope because this is an awful deal if the Mariners are not salary dumping to make a bigger move in the future this offseason. I think it's something where Gino would be better than these two players for the team right now unless getting rid of this extra $10 million that the that Vargas and Zaya... Oh man, I got to remember that guy's name. Zavala. Jeez. <laughs> Zavala is um, not going to add much this year in terms of production value, and so getting rid of Gino, I think that ratio of eleven million to about a million for those players, uh, I think Gino's eleven million dollars would actually benefit the Mariners more in terms of his WAR and everything like that. But as I let a fire truck go by, so you guys can listen to that, um, yeah, I think. I think it's going to be for a bigger move in the future, I hope. Because if it's not, if this is just a move so that we freed up a spot for Urias and Rojas plays second and we don't get a Shohei, we don't get a Blake Snell, we don't get a Juan Soto type player, this move is going to be for not. It's going to be something that 
we do or Japoto does just to maybe maybe be able to give Kirby or Gilbert extensions so that we can invest more into our pitching core in the future. But it's not something that will make the team better long term. And I think that's the problem with this move. If they don't get a big name that helps them this upcoming season, why would you trade Gino Suarez? It's an awful deal. Um, and you put him on the Diamondbacks, who a lot of Mariners fans are going to start rooting for because they keep getting our players and making them into... God, they keep getting our personality, man. Seawald, Suarez, we love those guys. We hope that uh, they do well for the D-backs. And uh, yeah, D-backs are definitely becoming a second second place team in terms of rooting for them, for, for Seattle or Seattle Mariners fans. Um, with that, I think, I think that's all. Obviously, John might have some future words to, to talk or future things to talk about on this, uh, these deals, but for me, that's my initial thoughts. John and I might talk about it later, um, later in the off season, if things kind of keep going in the direction that we hope they're going in. Um, but yeah, I hope you, hope you enjoyed that discussion. I hope it's an informative um, and if you have problems with the Mariners, join the club. So does everybody else. Uh, shoot us a message. We can definitely answer anything that uh, that you ask. Hello, this is John Carey recording Wednesday before Thanksgiving from the distant land of Phoenix, Arizona. You're not getting your normal content today as I forgot to bring all my appropriate recording equipment and really left Tyler hanging out to dry, as usual. Um, so we're doing something just a little different today, recording separate segments and just piecing them together. So I'm going to be talking to you about Gonzaga basketball and the up and down week that it's been, as well as Seahawks and a little value dogs at the end. Um, so let's jump in. Uh, Gonzaga uh, having a tough start to the week. Uh, we played Purdue the number two team in the nation in the first round of the Maui Invitational Tournament. Um, my favorite tournament that the Zags partake in about every other year. And it was a, a tale of two halves. They were up 35-30 at the end of the first half. They were playing well. They were moving the ball. And they were playing some really sharp defense, which, is, which has been kind of a carrying effect of the week. But... In the second half, Zaki would not be denied. Former National Player of the Year really bodied us up, got to the free throw line, and was able to set up his shooters outside. Um, Purdue ended up pushing on to win 73-63 in, in fairly dominant fashion. Worth noting that the game might have been a lot closer if Gonzaga hadn't missed 16 straight threes. Uh, in the second half to end the game. So, you know, if you get four of those to go down, which would be hitting your threes at a 25% clip, which I would like to think is less than this team is capable of, um, the game could have looked very different. However, not the case. Purdue played some good perimeter defense, and the number 11 team fell to number two, which should not be a big surprise. What really hurt about that is it hurt our chances of getting in a couple more really high-level ranked games against the likes of Kansas, Marquette, Tennessee. Um, we would have been able to play at least one, if not two of those teams, had we been able to pull off the win against Purdue. Instead, in the second round, uh, we played Syracuse and walloped them. Played really, really well. Won by 
more than 20, I believe. Um, yeah, 76-57, so a 19-point win. And this one was a very just well-rounded effort. Um, four of our starters scored in double figures. Um, Brandon Huff off the bench had nine points as well. Ike and Watson both had double-doubles with their rebounds, and Nemhard led the way with seven assists. Um, 76-57, what's the takeaway there? Uh, through a couple of games, I think we're seeing that the Zag offense isn't what it's been in the past. I talked about being a little bit optimistic about what this team could be and what they could accomplish on that side of the ball. And at least so far, with their three-point shooting disappointing and their you know half-court sets pretty sloppy, they've been turning the ball over a lot, um, they just have not been scoring at the rate we've seen them do in the past. Um, take the last two games, 63-76. This is a team that we're used to scoring 95, 105 in these college games as one of the best offenses in college basketball. But um, it seems like maybe there's a bit of a ceiling for them on that side of the ball. With that being said, this Gonzaga defense is, in my opinion, one of the best we've seen in the last 10 years. Um, their guard play on defense is is sporadic. Uh, Hickman can certainly be a good defender when he wants to. Nemhard plays hard, but he's just a little challenged size-wise. But then we're funneling guys into the paint where things get just really, really tough. Anton Watson is a all-defense collegiate player, and we've known that for the last year. He's just got another year under his belt, a little more experience. E.K., uh, our transfer from Wyoming, is far better than I expected on that side of the ball. We knew he'd be a tough rebounder and a solid low post scorer, but I think we were expecting more of a Timmy-like performance on that side of the ball. And that's just not been the case. He, uh, he's been moving his feet well. He's more quick laterally than I would have thought. He's not the most explosive vertical threat on offense or on defense, but he's got some quick lateral moves, which has been a, a real boon on the defensive end. And then our twin towers, our two hypothetically sweet shooting towers of Ben Gregg and Brandon Hoff coming off our bench have been both really strong defensively. And I think the greatest asset to our our front court's defense has just been the fact that they're all so rotatable where you can play Anton and Ike, you can play Greg and Huff, you can play Greg and Anton, you can play Greg and Ike, you can play Huff and Anton, you can play Huff and Ike. Uh, you can even play Anton at the three, Ike at the four, Huff or Brendan or Ben Greg at the five, and then you're getting a little less shooting out there, but um, the defensive versatility of that lineup is, is pretty special. So, been really impressed with that. If this team can get their offense clicking in something more typical of a Gonzaga offense of the past, they're going to be a really, really dangerous team. Um, I'm curious to see what the AP does with them after their loss to Purdue and then uh, win against Syracuse. We play UCLA tonight, another unranked team. And, you know, not trying to count my chickens, but... Uh, I feel good. You know, we own UCLA. We've ripped their heart out in two consecutive tournaments. 
or not consecutive, but two in the last four years. And I think we're going to pull this one off as well. So assuming that we do, what is the next step? We've lost the number two team in the nation, uh, who's gone on to win the Maui Invitational, beating uh, Marquette and Tennessee. And we have, you know, won our next game and we'll probably win the next as well. Will there be a significant drop from 11? I think, especially with our first half performance against Purdue, any educated AP voter who saw that we won the first half and then couldn't hit a three to save our life in the second half, I think there's a real chance we stand pat at 11. Um, I don't think this team deserves to drop with what, we, what we've seen from them. Um, and I would like <laughs> at least one more week hanging around around that top 10 because, you know, this is a young team. It's a new team. Um, there are going to be hiccups along the way, but I've been pretty impressed with what I've seen from their performances so far. Uh, next up, UCLA, which will be happening late tonight. And then I don't remember what the next non-conference game is, but I do know we have Kentucky coming up. And that will be a fun one as well. All right, we're back. And I'm going to immediately say say something that I don't think many people want to hear, but I'm going to say it. UW should have lost this game to Oregon State. I, I love the dogs. Um, they made too many mistakes, and they, the receivers did not make the plays that they that they needed to make in order to take a commanding commanding enough lead for us to win this game handily. We only won by two. 22 to 20 against the Oregon State Beavers. It should have been... 36 to 27 but if that's the case the reason we don't score those two touchdowns or two more touchdowns is because uh polk couldn't hang on to the ball um honestly all of our receivers couldn't hang on to the ball we had uh giles jackson polk didn't have a catch that's that's tough because he was targeted quite a bit mcmillan still coming back off the injury but he didn't have a catch and he was playing for most of the game just trying to get back to speed um yeah here, here, let me break down the, the numbers for you. Penix, 162 yards on 13 for 28 passing. It's a less than 50% completion percentage. Uh, 5.8 yards uh, yards of a catch. Um, and two touchdowns for Penix. A really good Penix game only because it was in the rain, tough conditions, and Adunze was able to pick him up. Adunze had seven receptions for 106 of those 162 yards. And Adunze looked like the man. He really, I said this earlier in the season, and I know John was butting up against it, but I do think Adunze is probably the second best receiver in college football right now behind Harrison. I don't know that he's the second best NFL prospect in terms of receivers, but Adunze is at the very least the second best receiver in college football right now. Um, And he's really making a case for himself. Westover was the only other guy with multiple receptions in this game. He had four receptions for 43 yards, working that tight end position, which is something we worried the Beavers were going to do. And they were really unable to get the ball to their tight ends much. Um, but they did have some long, long passes over the over the over our cornerbacks. But you know who had a really, really, really good game was uh, Jabbar Muhammad. Two interceptions and a fumble recovery on defense and honestly played probably the best game of his entire career. If you, if you had seen this guy throughout this season or seen this type of play throughout the season, this guy would be the first pick in the draft. Like this dude had an amazing game. He, he had, I think three or four pass 
breakups where he just batted the ball away. Obviously, the two interceptions and the fumble recovery. The man had an uh, like all-American type game. Um, Uyagalele, the Oregon State quarterback, also had some str- some struggles passing the ball. Fifteen for thirty-one and one hundred and sixty-four yards. No touchdowns. Two interceptions. Um, you know who was a real big threat to us was Damian Martinez on Oregon State. Big, big running back, hitting our guys, trying to tackle him, and it was just, we we couldn't bring him down. 26 carries for 123 yards and two touchdowns. I was surprised they didn't go to him more. It felt like every time they gave him the ball, he would get four to five yards, like no matter what, and it was tough for our guys to bring him down. Um, yeah, we should have lost this game. We lost by, or we won by two, but Oregon State should have had more. The I say this with the with the thought of if Washington plays the way they do and Oregon State plays the way they should have but the fact of the matter is if Washington plays the way they should have with the more with the amount of completions that Polk missed um and Jackson and everybody um and really a pretty limited running game in this one it was yeah it was a way closer game than it needed to be i really think UW because of the rain because of the conditions and because of just everything that was going on that just made it made it tough for them to take a commanding lead against this beaver beaver team. Um, now, obviously, John and I do love our beeves. We would have been okay if the beeves won, as long as they beat Oregon this week. That's that's all I can ask for. Um, Reeser looked like a great stadium. Wish I could have been there in the in the pouring rain. Um, other than that, Dylan Johnson, 16 carries for 89 yards, 5.6 yards a carry. Um, he had one really big breakaway. Uh, breakaway run for 43 yards and the rest were just kind of small chunks so not a huge game by dylan johnson by any means he also had that breakaway i think was the one where he had a fumble at the end of it at like the five yard line like he had a really really bad fumble at the five where he should have scored and that's what i'm saying uw should have had 36 points but they had some bad miscues um yeah yeah that's all that's all i want to say about this game it was it was closer than it should have been. UW should have won one by ten, but because of that, it gives us a twenty-two to twenty lot or win. Uh, we do move up to four after Florida State's win because of their quarterback going down, and that doesn't make me feel great because it just means the committee has really been against putting us at four, and only because of their quarterback going down is the reason that that we move past Florida State. Um, Florida State's are still really good. I'm still concerned that they have the chance to win the ACC. And if we beat Washington State this week, we're going to have to play Oregon, likely, unless Oregon State wins this game in Arizona. Uh, or yeah, Oregon State wins against Oregon, and Arizona beats Arizona State. Then we wouldn't. Then we would play Arizona in the uh, Pac-12 championship, which I feel a lot more confident about. But this Oregon team is scary, and there are situations where. Oregon and Washington both end up in the playoff, but there's also situations where neither team ends up in the playoff because we have a one-loss Alabama team, a one-loss Georgia team, and then Ohio State and Florida State. It's, it's you know, the, the committee is going to take uh, a one-loss Alabama and a one-loss Georgia team over a Huskies and Ducks team. Tough to fathom, I know, but that's just kind of how it is, and that's the that's the concern. You still got to win out. You still got to win this upcoming game against Wazoo, and you need to focus to beat the Beavs, or the Ducks. Um, yeah, so looking ahead to the Washington State game, man, I was looking at the statistics for this, and I was I was shocked that the Cougars were 5-6, and six, and then I looked at the rushing. The Cougars' leading rusher on the season 
has 257 yards, four touchdowns. That's basically a quarter of what Dylan Johnson's done. And we didn't necessarily see much out of Dylan Johnson until the last couple weeks. Like this dude there, the Washington state rushing, uh, rushing offense has been very, very bad. And so that does give me pause because UW's cornerbacks and safeties have been the things that have been getting beat. Um, and so looking at Cam Ward's stats, he's got almost 3,500 yards, 22 touchdowns, five interceptions. Like we were saying earlier, he's had a Heisman-like season, especially early. Um, now, when you only win five games and you started off as hot as they did and go ice cold, it's tough to make a, make a Heisman um, campaign for him. But a really, really good year from Cam Ward and a scary team when you think about UW having to cover um, his potential you know, yards on the ground and his ability to throw the ball. This Wazoo offense can be scary. I do think it's going to be not too hard for UW to score 42 points on them, but I say that every single week and we haven't, haven't had more than 42 in the last couple. We had 35 points against Utah and 22 against Oregon state. Now those are both quality opponents. And I think this is more like the Stanford team that we played four weeks ago. And I could, I could see a 42 to 28 type game where it's just kind of back and forth. And eventually UW's defense starts to win out because of that high number of people that can play and come in and step up late in the game. That's super helpful, but don't be surprised if this comes down to the wire and it's a 49 to 42, you know, shots back and forth at each other. Um, all that is to say, I really think UW has this in the bag. The line's minus 16 and a half. Over-unders at 68 and a half. This is uh, very much, very much in UW's favor. I think it's going to be... I I personally think it's going to be like a 42 or 49 to 28 type game. Maybe maybe the Cougs get a field goal in there, but college football is not the place to look for a field goal. So I'm thinking it's going to be a nice high-scoring affair, and UW's going to take, take some charge. That being said, I've already been talking for 20 minutes, so you've seen how easy it is for John and I to get going, and it's just as easy when we're by ourselves talking to talking to no one. So I'm gonna move on, give you my value dogs, and I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a prediction for John's rancid dog just because we I haven't seen any of his any of his picks, and I just want to give you guys some some interesting content. So an update on the season. I am currently almost 500 at a 14, 15, and 1 record. Big weekend for me. Obviously, we John and I both had the Bengals plus 3.5 against the Ravens, and Joe Burrow going down with an injury was less than ideal. So the, the that line didn't cover. Other than that, the Raiders held out for me, and the Vikings narrowly, narrowly lost by one point, and that plus 2.5 line held strong. So big 2-1 week for me. Uh, John went one and two. He is now 14, 13, and three. We're neck and neck, folks. Obviously, if you'd been fading one of us or uh, picking one of us for the whole season, you'd be about 500, and that's that's all you can ask for. Um, but this week, I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to get positive. That's the goal. So my first pick for my value dogs, the Sound Up Seattle value dogs, for week 12 in the NFL, I have the Panthers plus four against the Titans. The Titans are throwing away their season. I think the Panthers are still trying to win. I want them to win so badly because they're giving their pick to the, to the Bears. They're, they don't have their first round pick and currently they're slated to have the number one pick. They don't want that. The Panthers are trying to take it or trying to get these wins and I think the Titans are kind of thrown in the towel. 
They've ran out of steam. They were decent early in the year and have plummeted in the last little bit. So Panthers plus four feels right. They can lose by a field goal, but I really think the Panthers have a chance to win this game. They're trying to win. Um, and the Titans are not a team that's going to be able to run away with the, with the, with the score. Next pick, pick number two. I have got the Rams plus one and a half against the Cardinals. You're thinking, wait, the Rams are not favored in this game. And that's my exact thought. I think the Cardinals will, uh, you know, as, as much as having Kyler Murray back is going to help the Cardinals. I think the Rams are just a better team in general with their receivers. Obviously if Stafford doesn't play, this line makes a little bit more sense, but all in all, I think the, I think the Rams are just going to win this game. The Cardinals are not as good as them. Um, and after seeing the Seahawks Rams game last week, which I'm hoping John talks about in his section, uh, I think the Rams are good. I, I really think the Rams defense is nice. Um, Aaron Donald against Kyler Murray is going to be a very interesting matchup. And I just think the receivers for the Rams are better. And Matthew Stafford versus Kyler Murray is kind of a wash. They're very different types of quarterbacks, but have, I, I have yet to really grow some faith in Kyler Murray. So we'll see about that one with my third and final pick for the value dogs of this week, week 12. I'm going to stick with my boys over the last couple of weeks Man, the Raiders are plus nine and a half against the Chiefs. They keep getting huge lines, and they keep losing by seven. I, I will keep taking them. Um, obviously, losing by 10 is kind of a big deal, but the Chiefs just lost to the Eagles, and there's been a bunch of statistics, bunch of bunch of information being shared that the Chiefs are an awful, awful second-half offense. Um, and I think, that, like I've said this a bunch of times, the Chiefs don't score more than 24 points in a game. There was the one time they did it against the Chargers, but other than that, the Chiefs are going to score 27 points against this Raiders team. Like, I just don't think they're as offensively diverse as they need to be in terms of the ability to run the ball, ability to pass deep, ability to get it to Kelsey. Um, obviously, Kelsey had an awful game against the Eagles, and just so many drops caused that loss for the Chiefs. But when it comes down to the wire, they still would have only had 23 points. Like, it's it wasn't a good game by them. Um, so I really like the Raiders plus nine and a half. They've still got all their weapons. Um, their backup QB has been very, very average, and that's all he's needed to be. Definitely garbage time touchdown potential there. Um, hey, that's it for me. That's it for uh, my section of the pod besides John John's rancid dog guess. Um, and, oh boy, um, I'm going to be honest. I think... I think John's rancid dog is going to be the Chargers plus three and a half against the Ravens. I just don't, I don't see how the Chargers come anywhere close to the Ravens this week. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, who knows? Maybe he'll take the Chargers as one of his value dogs, but I just don't see it. Uh, with that, hey, I hope you have a great, great Thanksgiving holiday or had. I hope you're not listening to this on Thanksgiving. Um, and can we get a go dogs? All right, let's get back into it. Seattle Seahawks, week 11, played the Rams of Los Angeles and lost a nail-biter, 16-17. to 17. Came down to a Rams game-winning field goal. Um, part of that historic weekend of game-winning field goals. Um, and this was a tough one. The loss brings the team to 6-4. and four. Uh, We are now entering, not already in, but entering, that ridiculous four-game stretch where we play the Niners twice, the Cowboys, and Philadelphia. I anticipate 
an 0-4 stretch over those four games, which would bring us to 6-8. and I would love to be wrong, but that's just a gauntlet of the three best teams in the NFC. So um, losing a game like this to the LA Rams, where Cooper Cup goes down in the second quarter with an injury, is just pretty disappointing. Um, and, and I think we were particularly disappointing on the offensive side of the ball. Chino went 22 for 34, threw for 230 yards and a touchdown, and was hurt late in the game, um, I believe on an Aaron Donald sack, and Drew Locke had to close out for us, which did not go well. Um, For all the Chino doubters, I think it is fair to say that the Drew Locke era is is far away. Um, Charbonnet and Kenneth Walker were both able to run the ball with mixed success, one, I think, interesting note is that Charbonnet carried the ball 15 times to Kenneth Walker's four, and while Walker had a better yards per carry, they were leaning on Charbonnet as the lead back in this game. I'm not sure if that was an issue of Walker getting beat up a little bit and just needing some rest, or if that's the coaching staff recognizing what I've already seen, which is that I think Charbonnet has been the more effective back. Um I'm curious to see this next week against the Niners if he continues to get that lead back role. Metcalf had another Metcalf game, five receptions on nine targets for 94 yards and a touchdown. You know, he was very good, but five for nine again. We keep hitting almost 50% on these receptions to targets ratio. Um, and I don't like it. But, uh, yeah, the big story of the game, the offense was disappointing. Putting up 16 points against this Rams defense does not bode well for games against the Niners, for Philadelphia, and for Dallas, all of which host significantly better offenses and, in my opinion, significantly better defenses. So I'm not sure how much more there is to be said about this particular Seahawks game. It was a bad loss. They would really like it back. They would far prefer to be at seven and three than six and four with this upcoming schedule. I think the absolute best you could hope for would be a two and two stretch. A more realistic hope would be a one and three stretch would put them at seven and seven. And maybe the most realistic option is being zero and four over these next four. So uh, this is one they needed, and it's one they didn't get. Uh, as these four games unfold, they might have to start making some business decisions about next year, about what they want their team to look like, about health. Um, but there is always a chance of a playoff spot in the NFC. It's been pretty top-heavy. So I guess, yeah, first these four games and then those decisions can be made. Coming up, the Seahawks have the great joy of playing a Thanksgiving game, the night game on Thanksgiving against the 49ers. It'll be 6.20 p.m. uh, Mountain Time. And, yeah, they'll play the Niners, who are at full strength with McCaffrey back, with Debo back. Kittle's been playing well. Purdy's been playing well. So I do not anticipate this being a very fun game to watch for Seahawks fans, but I love to be proved wrong. Um, and Gino has done it to me in the past. So keep your eyes open for that one, and uh, <laughs> we will see what happens. Um, now for a little a little value dogs. This is going to be interesting because I don't know who Tyler is going to pick. 
I'm not sure if he's going to edit it if we have the same picks or uh, or just let us both expound on our on our picked games. But there were three games that stood out to me for this week. Uh, three games that I liked particularly. So for my first value dog of the week, I'm taking the Bills plus three against the Eagles. Um, this Bills team is is on death's door. They are backed into the corner in the realest of ways after consecutive disappointing losses. Um, and they need this win to get back on track. Um, they need it. This is as serious as a heart attack for them. Um, the Sean McDermott era in Buffalo could be ending. Um, and it could be ending on the knife point of this game. So, uh, Buffalo is going to be playing with a ton of intensity in my mind on both sides of the ball. I expect Josh Allen to play a clean game and play with a lot of passion, see some big third down scrambles for first downs. Um, and on the other side of the ball, I just don't think the Eagles care that much about this game. They're coming off their Super Bowl redemption against the Kansas City Chiefs, which was an emotional win. I saw a video of Kevin Stefanski, the Eagles head coach, yelling at Chiefs fans in the tunnel. Um, so they were, you know, exercising demons last week. And I think this week, you know, it's kind of a classic game that means more to the other guys than it means to us. And I'm surprised that the Bills are getting the full three. So I'm taking the Bills plus three against the Eagles. For my second game, I'm taking the Browns plus one and a half against the Broncos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how high the Broncos have climbed in the last four weeks from what everyone considered to be one of the worst teams in the NFL to now being favored by a point and a half against what everyone agrees is the best defense in the NFL in this Cleveland Browns team. Um, I agree the Broncos have been playing much cleaner football lately. Uh, Russell Wilson has been protecting the ball, not turning it over, making smart, easy plays. And the Broncos' defense has been playing really well. With that being said, I expect Russ and this Broncos offense to run into an absolute meat grinder in this Cleveland Browns defense. And the Cleveland offense just has to do what they always do, which is put up three field goals, maybe a touchdown, let the defense lead the way, and uh, walk out of there with a win. So I like a point and a half in that matchup. Last but not least, I'm going back to the well from last year, last year, last week, and I'm pick, picking the Cardinals plus one and a half against the Rams. Uh, I know we just saw this Rams team beat the Seattle Seahawks, but they only put up 17 points. Um, I'm not particularly scared of their offense. Cooper Cup is questionable after that leg injury against the Seahawks. And if he's not out there, it's just Puka Nakua, who's, I think, kind of running out of rabbits to pull out of hats. And a beat-up Matt Stafford. Um, Kyron Williams is returning from the IR. Running backs first weeks back from injury are always interesting. So I'm just, I'm not particularly scared of the Rams. And this Cardinals team, last week, with Kyler at the helm, looked very, very sharp. Upsetting a Houston Texans team that's you know, we all have a lot of respect for. And I say upsetting. They covered the spread. They did not win. Um, but I think they're going to do it again. They're getting a point and a half against a Rams team that I'm losing faith in every week. I'm losing faith from this last week, even though they won the game. So 
uh, I'm taking the Cardinals plus one and a half. See if they can do it again. I believe in Kyler. Um, and that ends my picks for Value Dogs of the Week. I hope Tyler didn't pick any of mine or we're in trouble. Um, and yeah, Tyler, thanks for putting this together. Sorry for forgetting my equipment. It will not happen again. All right, everyone. As you can hear, John and I picked one game to have two different outcomes. That's because John started recording his on the morning of Thanksgiving, bright and early for me. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was edited very quick, so if there's any any errors, I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to get this out to the people. If you enjoyed this episode of Sound Up Seattle, please feel free to give us a follow on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Um, you can find Sound Up Seattle on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram, all at Sound Up Seattle, all lowercase, all one word. You can find me, Tyler, everywhere that's important at Tycart50. Oh, I did it in reverse this time. Whoops. Uh, and you can find John back with me soon. Don't don't fret. He'll be back, uh, and we'll get some more some more of his lovely laughter back on the pod soon. <laughs>